arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter 
and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation." And those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness, with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. We shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. So we ask now that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is the truth. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus, who is the word made flesh. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that descended at Pentecost and who breathed out your word through the prophets and the apostles. Amen. Most of you know that uh, until Bethany and I moved back to Michigan about 10 years ago, I pastored a small rural church in Fordsville, Kentucky, and there was a certain member of that church, his name was Link Midkiff, Link Midkiff, and old Link would sit on the very front row Left side, if you're looking out from the pulpit, he'd sit right there, front row, every week. And um, Link would fall asleep during the sermon every week. Um, But if I ever preached past noon, somehow, miraculously, Link would always wake up (laughs) right about noon, and he'd start staring at me. And he'd start doing this number on the watch. Um, every week he would do that. Or, you know, if he felt like I was going too long, apparently. So this is Link, Midkiff. And one day Link comes to me and he asks me if Bethany and I would like any of his turnips that he's been growing. And the truth is that I did not want any turnips. But I was a young pastor trying to connect with an older member of my congregation who was sometimes of the opinion that I could be a bit long-winded. So I said, sure, we'll take some turnips. And so Link says, okay, tomorrow meet me at my farm and I'll get you the turnips. And so I say, okay. So the next day, Bethany, myself, Um, baby Alex Jr., he was a little baby, we got in our Ford Explorer and we drove over to Link Midkiff's farm. And when we arrived at Link's farm, um, he said, all right, come out now into the field, into the crop field, and I'll I'll get you the turnips. So I was like, okay. A little weird, kind of figured he'd have them like ready at the, (laughs) you know, the door, but... So we drive out to a section of his 
crop field that's parallel to the road there in Ohio County. And uh, Link gets out of his car, and I get out of my car, and Link says, all right, here we are. Dig them up, and they're all yours. <laughs> I think this goes without saying, but I was under the impression that I was driving over to Link's house for him to like hand me some turnips that I would turn around and take home and let sit for a little while and then throw away. <laughs> like for the sole purpose of endearing myself to Link Midkiff. And so now I found myself in Link Midkiff's field, like crop field, digging up, manually digging up turnips that I don't even want. So I don't know if Link was like ribbing me or if like this is how Southerners gift each other vegetables. But I came away from that experience with three things. A story, a lesson learned, and thirdly, I came away with the first fruits of Link Midkiff's turnips, which sat in our kitchen until they rotted and we threw them away. But the first fruits are what Acts chapter 2 is all about. The first fruits, because Acts chapter 2 is all about Pentecost. Pentecost is the coming of the Holy Spirit after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ to reap the first fruits of Christ's kingdom. The word Pentecost means 50. So it doesn't mean Pentecost, it means 50. All right, so I'm safe for Pastor Brett there calling out the Greek explaining preachers. Pentecost means 50. Why? Because Israel celebrated Pentecost 50 days after Passover. Um, and for the last, of course, the last 2,000 years, Christians have celebrated Pentecost 50 days after Easter. In Exodus 23 and Leviticus 23, this is where we first see Pentecost given in the Old Testament, where Yahweh commanded Israel to observe Pentecost. Pentecost in the Old Testament is also called the Feast of Weeks. It's called the Day of First Fruits in Numbers 28-26. In Leviticus 23-22, it's called the Feast of Harvest. And Pentecost was one of three annual feasts under the Old Covenant that required all able-bodied Jewish men to travel to Jerusalem, to the temple, to offer sacrifices. So every Passover, every Pentecost, Feast of Weeks, and every Feast of Booths. Uh, these are the three high holy days that required all able-bodied Jewish men to travel to Jerusalem, to the temple, to offer sacrifices. Pentecost uh, was the holy day uh, every year when God's people offered the first fruits of their wheat. So the wheat harvest would begin to come in around that time, the time of Pentecost, and they would offer the first fruits in worship to the Lord because he blessed them with their wheat. Uh, Pentecost, they would also remember the giving of the Torah, the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, uh, when, when the Lord gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai, they would remember that every year at Pentecost. And what Acts chapter 2 is revealing to us is that the reason, the providential reason behind Pentecost, the reason that Israel practiced the, this feast for hundreds of years was to point forward to when the ascended Lord Jesus would send the Holy Spirit. That was the reason behind the practice in the nation of Israel. Pentecost is the celebration of the final coming of the Holy Spirit to gather God's people. So we just read from Acts chapter 2. It is a lengthy chapter. And so what we're going to do at this point is divide that text, that chapter, into three sections and then just make some observations from each section. 
And this is how we're going to divide the text up. The first section is verses 1 through 13. If you, if you like to write notes or anything, we're just going to label that, that section the Holy Spirit. So verses 1 through 13, the Holy Spirit. The second section, verses 14 through 41, we'll label that section the Gospel. And then the third section, verses 42 through 47, we'll label that the Church. So 1 through 13, the Holy Spirit. 14 through 41, the Gospel. 42 to 47, the Church. So the first section, verses 1 through 13, the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2 picks up now from where we left off last week, Acts chapter 1, 10 days later, 10 days after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus ascended to heaven 40 days after his resurrection. Pentecost, of course, is 10 days later, 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. This is why every year uh, it, during that season on the church calendar, Ascension Day is always on a Thursday because it's 40 days after Easter. We always celebrate it the following Sunday, Ascension Sunday, and then Pentecost is always the Sunday after Ascension. So we're 10 days after Acts chapter 1 here. And Verse 1 of Acts chapter 2 reads, When the day of Pentecost arrived. Um, the, the Greek text actually more accurately reads, And in the fulfillment of the day of Pentecost. Because in the ESV, that word arrived, that Greek word, is the word sumpleruthai, and that's better translated. Arrived is not the best translation. Actually, it more literally means fulfilled. So when the in the fulfillment of the day of Pentecost, a well-respected Greek lexicon defines sumpleruthai as this, to come to the end of a period of time with the implication of the completion of an implied purpose or plan. So it's not just, Luke is not merely saying, and now it's the day of Pentecost, and here's what happened. He's saying, now when we get to the fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks, now we're going to see the fulfillment of Pentecost. Verse 1 is telling us that the meaning of Pentecost, that the true meaning from the beginning of the Feast of Weeks was fulfilled on this day in redemptive history in Acts chapter 2. The reason that Yahweh commanded Israel to practice the Feast of Weeks for hundreds of years was to prepare the world for the day that we're reading about. For the day 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the day 10 days after the ascension of Jesus Christ. Pentecost is the fulfillment of of the promise made in Ezekiel 36, verse 27, where God declares that in the new covenant, he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Uh, Pastor Mike read in our call to worship from Joel chapter 2, Peter in his sermon tells us that Pentecost is the fulfillment of this Pericope in Joel chapter 2, where the Lord pours his spirit out on all of his people. And, and Acts chapter 2 and the topic of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit in general often will beg the question from many Christians, what is the difference between how the Holy Spirit worked under the Old Covenant versus how the Holy Spirit now works under the new covenant. What is the difference between how believers were saved or how they had faith under the old covenant versus the new? What is so special about the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? What is the difference? And the answer is the difference between two distinct works of the Holy Spirit. The first work is called regeneration, and the second work is called indwelling. So let's think about the first, regeneration. Regeneration refers to the work of the Holy Spirit wherein he makes us spiritually alive. Because we're born with a sin nature, again, Mike talked about that during the confession and pardon, the Bible uses different word pictures to describe our spiritual condition. 
Ephesians 2, 1 says that we're dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, we are blind. We are deaf. Ezekiel 36, 26 says we have a heart of stone. All of these metaphors reveal the, that apart from the work of God, the supernatural work of God, that we are naturally adverse to God. Every human being is naturally adverse to God. The scripture uses the term we are at enmity, we are at war with God. And so regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit where he changes our affections. He changes our loves and takes us from a posture of against Christ to a posture of loving Christ. Regeneration is where the Holy Spirit raises our hearts from spiritual death, where he opens our spiritual eyes, where he opens our spiritual ears, where he transforms our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And the scripture is clear that regeneration always precedes faith. The Holy Spirit works regeneration, and then we are given the gift of faith. So every person in the history of the world who has ever believed God's promises, they believe because the Holy Spirit first worked regeneration in their hearts. This was true in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, and it is still true today. Regeneration did not change because of Pentecost. Uh, Israel and God's people were not saved by works in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. They were saved by their faith that was given to them when the Holy Spirit worked regeneration in their hearts. So that's not changed. That's always been true. So what changed at Pentecost was the other work of the Holy Spirit that we're talking about right now, indwelling. Under the Old Covenant, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit was communal. The Spirit dwelt in the tabernacle. The Spirit dwelt in the temple, and the people would gather to where God dwelt. Now, there were special occasions where the Holy Spirit would indwell particular individuals for special works. Think of certain prophets, priests, kings, but it was never permanent indwelling. 1 Samuel 16, 14 tells us that Yahweh removed his spirit from King Saul after King Saul disobeyed the Lord. Uh, in Psalm 51, verse 11, King David begs God to not take his Holy Spirit from him. Psalm 51, 11. So under the Old Covenant, the indwelling of the spirit was communal, uh, there were certain individuals who were indwelt by the Spirit for particular tasks, but it was never permanent. But under the New Covenant, God promised that His Spirit would permanently indwell every individual believer, and this is what happened at Pentecost. We confessed in the Nicene Creed that the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit um, and he, the Holy Spirit has come fully and finally now, not only to regenerate believers, but also to permanently indwell us. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. At the baptism of John, Jesus of Nazareth was the first human being ever to be permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And after Pentecost, now the Holy Spirit permanently indwells every single believer. And then Luke goes on to give us vivid imagery to describe, uh, and he, he begins describing the apostles speaking in tongues or speaking in languages, which was a sign that, uh, that Christ from heaven gave to verify the coming of the Holy Spirit. And listen to the vivid imagery that Luke is using here. He says, There was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Divided tongues as of fire appeared. So throughout Scripture, fire oftentimes represents the presence of God. Think about the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. So here in, at Pentecost, we see God's presence is here through these, 
these divided tongues as of fire. In Matthew 3.11, John says that he baptizes with water, but Christ will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. In Luke chapter 1, Jesus promised that after he ascended, that the Father would baptize them in the Spirit. And all of this imagery is describing this sign, the sign which is proving that this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is the proof in Acts chapter 2 that this is the baptism that John and Jesus were pointing us forward to? It's that the apostles spoke in different languages so that all of the visitors to Jerusalem could understand what they were saying. Pentecost is when Christ baptized them, the apostles, the church, in the spirit and fire, and then speaking in the different languages is the proof that that's what was happening. Now, of course, there is disagreement um, among Christians about how I'm interpreting this passage. Uh, you know, some, some Pentecostal charismatic Christians interpret the passages in Scripture about tongues oftentimes to, to, to talk about you know, an, uh, an unintelligible language or like a heavenly language or something like that. Um, that I, that's not how I interpret uh, this passage. Of course, there are faithful brothers who do, and I don't really want to fight about it. But I'll tell you, uh, I think especially in Acts chapter 2, maybe we could debate some other passages, but especially in Acts chapter 2, it would seem like there's almost little to no debate that, that these tongues are referring to actual languages. Uh, at least here it does. Um, some Christian traditions will even say that someone is not, is not a believer unless they speak, speak in tongues, speak in unintelligible languages. That obviously is not the case. Um, but here in Acts 1 for sure, or Acts 2, I'm sorry, these tongues are actual languages. Notice in verse 6 and in verse 11, they're saying we can understand what they're saying. right? How are these Galileans speaking our languages? So here, these languages, they're, they're preaching the gospel in, in languages that people can understand, and it's the proof that this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit Christ was referring to. Um, why, then, that, that begs the question of why. Why was speaking in different languages the sign that Christ gave for Pentecost, for the fulfillment of this Feast of Weeks? Speaking in various tongues, various languages, points to the reality, the reality that we talked about last week, that God's kingdom is no longer merely Israel, but now it is comprised of the nations, people from every tribe, every tongue, every language. And the proof here with the coming of the Holy Spirit is they, they start speaking in all these different languages because that is what God's kingdom looks like. That's why the 12 apostles, again, there's 12 apostles representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and now they're speaking in various languages because the gospel will go to the nations. Remember the thesis statement for the book of Acts, the layout, the outline for the book of Acts is Acts 1.8, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's beginning here. Pentecost is the Jerusalem part of that. They are preaching the gospel to the nations. Jesus sent his spirit to collect his elect from all of the nations. And the crowd, in response to this scene that's going on, the crowd, their first question is like, they're like, are these guys drunk? Which is weird, right? Because, you know, there's a lot of debate about what this means too, but whatever the scene was, like whatever was going on, everyone's first question is like, I think these guys are a little lubed up here. Like, did they have a little drink? And Peter's like, it's nine in the morning. I promise you, we're not, we're not drunk. Why did this scene cause the crowd to wonder if the apostles were drunk? I don't know for sure. I can tell you the best response I've ever heard to that question is that the apostles were so happy, that the apostles had so much joy that everybody assumed they had to be drunk. So that's the first section, the Holy Spirit. The second section, the gospel, Acts 2, 14 through 41. 
Now, the first thing we should note in this section, that, like we saw last week, and we're going to see all throughout the book of Acts, is this hermeneutical principle that the apostles continue to employ, the hermeneutics of Christ. That scripture, here we read three scriptures, right? Peter in his sermon quotes from Joel 2, he quotes from Psalm 16 and from Psalm 110, that uh, the scripture is once again fulfilled and the scripture is all about Christ. Um, All of those passages that Peter mentions, like every single passage in the Old Testament, and like the entire Bible, are all about Jesus. Each of these passages that Peter reads, Psalm uh, 16 is fulfilled on Easter, right? Psalm 110 is fulfilled on Ascension. Joel 2 is fulfilled at Pentecost. And the content of Peter's sermon further proves the point. Because from these passages, from these Old Testament passages, Joel 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, Peter preaches the gospel. The gospel is the good news of God's salvation of sinners. We confessed it earlier in the Nicene Creed that it was for us men and for our salvation that Christ came. The gospel is the announcement of the reversal of the curse. The gospel is the message that God is our holy creator. God is holy. He is different. He is other. He is distinct. He is the one creator, and he created us in his image. But in Adam, in the garden, we have fallen in sin, and we have sinned against God, and we deserve God's justice. We deserve God's wrath because of our sin. We deserve eternal conscious punishment because God is infinitely holy, and our sin has infinitely offended him. That's bad news. That's bad news for all of us. But Peter tells us that Jesus shows up on the scene and Jesus does mighty works and Jesus does wonders and Jesus does signs to reveal that he is God incarnate, that he is the word made flesh, that he is the son of God, the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Jesus is the Christ promised from Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the seed of the woman who's come to crush the head of the serpent. And Peter says that before God even created the world, that the Holy Trinity made a definite plan. Those are the words he uses, a definite plan for Jesus to die and for God to raise him up. This is only possible because in his life, Jesus never sinned. But Jesus had to die for the sins of his people because God's just penalty for sin is death. And Jesus had to pay our penalty. God told Adam in the garden, the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. Paul says in Romans that death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 6 says that the wages of sin is death. So Jesus had to die if he was going to atone for the sins of his people. But Peter goes on to say that it was not possible for death to hold Jesus. Why? Because Jesus never sinned. The only power that death has over anyone, the only reason that death can keep us in the ground is because we deserve to die. We all rightly deserve to die because of our sin, but Jesus never sinned, and so death could not hold Jesus. So on the third day, Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, and 40 days later, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where God made him both Lord and Christ. And it is from the right hand of God then that Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Before the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the Holy Spirit could not permanently indwell God's people. It couldn't happen until the work of Christ was finished. Why? Because God cannot permanently dwell with sin. But now, after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ, now we are in Christ, and Christ has no sin. So now God can permanently dwell within us 
because we are in the sinless one. This is why Jesus had to ascend before he could send the Holy Spirit. That's what happened at Pentecost. In verses 37 through 41, we see that hearing the gospel is not enough, but there must also be a response to the gospel. Look at verse 37. It says, when the crowd heard the gospel, they were cut to the heart. That's the work of regeneration that we mentioned earlier. The Holy Spirit opened their eyes to believe. And and then Peter tells the crowd to repent and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And he says that this promise is for those who believe and for their children. This gospel is to be passed down through the generations. Just as Pastor Brett led us and Andy and Maddie and baby Joanna in this baby dedication, that is the goal, that is the intention, that is the hope for her and for all of these children to believe the good news. Peter says to repent and be baptized. To repent means to confess that you are a sinner and then to turn from your sin. It's, it's everything we mentioned earlier in the confession and pardon. You can only do so when the Holy Spirit has worked regeneration in your heart and when the Holy Spirit has indwelt you, and then that is revealed by your faith. And so you might ask, how do I know if I have faith in Jesus? Do you have the knowledge, the assent, and the trust in the person and work of Jesus. That's what faith is. Start with the first facet, it's knowledge. Do you know, do you have the information that God is holy, that you are a sinner, and that's only through the person and work of Jesus that you are saved? That's, that's the knowledge that we're speaking of in terms of faith. That knowledge is the starting point of faith. But faith, but it's not, faith is, is not only knowledge. Faith also includes assent, uh, assent to the validity of these truth claims. Do you actually think these things are true? Do you actually think that there is one true holy God? Do you actually think that you have sinned against him and need to be made right with him? Do you actually think that Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, is the only way that that can happen? That is what we mean by assent. But knowledge and assent, honestly, both together fall short of saving faith because the key element of saving faith is trust. Do you trust in Christ? Do you trust Jesus with your eternal destiny the same way that you trust that chair you're sitting in right now to hold you up? Do you trust Jesus the same way that you trust drinking water with the understanding that you have nothing to offer the water other than the reality that without the water, you will die? Are you betting all of eternity on the fact that this is all on Jesus? If that's not the answer, then I have no hope. That's my only answer. That's what it means to trust. And so I encourage you even now, if you haven't, transfer your trust to Jesus. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the reason for which you were made. God created each of us in his image. We have fallen in sin, and Christ is the image, the the image of the invisible God. He is God incarnate who came to reconcile us with God, and, uh, and it's the only way that we're made right. It's the only way that we feel complete, that we feel uh, the forgiveness of our sin, the guilt and shame that we experience in life, the, 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 the questions of why am I here and what's the purpose. All of these are answered in the gospel. Believe the gospel. And then when you trust Jesus, your first act of obedience is to be baptized. Now here at Christ Community Church, we practice Believer's baptism, uh, meaning we baptize people after they confess faith in Jesus. There are other Reformed churches, uh, Anglican churches, Lutheran churches, Presbyterian churches, Dutch Reformed churches. 
These churches practice uh, infant baptism based partially on verse 39 here that the promise is for, the, for us and our children. We want you to know we're not mad at any of those churches uh, just because we practice a different mode of baptism than they do because we understand that we both believe in the same meaning of baptism. And the meaning of baptism is that it is a sign of the new covenant picturing our identification with the death and resurrection of Christ. So uh, that was the second section. The third section here now is the church, Acts 2, 42 through 47. And we see now that this group of baptized Christians live their lives together in the local church. And Luke gives us these four uh, timeless marks of the local church, that the church devoted themselves and has always devoted themselves to, number one, the apostles' teaching. Uh, The apostles' teaching refers to Orthodox Christian doctrine, it refers to a Christ-centered reading of Scripture, and it refers to the preaching of the gospel. That's the apostles' uh, teaching. Secondly, they devoted themselves to fellowship. More on that in a minute. Thirdly, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, which specifically refers to the other sacrament, the sacrament we haven't mentioned yet, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. And fourth, they devoted themselves to the prayers. So the church has always practiced uh, the discipline of prayer, always discipled others to practice prayer as well. Uh, So let's think about fellowship for a minute. Fellowship uh, is the word, some of you will be very familiar with it, koinonia. Uh, This is what it means. It means an association involving close mutual relations and involvement. Okay, so let's say that again. Fellowship, the, the word koinonia, this is what it means an association involving close mutual relations and involvement. The word is basically a picture of a group of rowers all rowing in the same direction. That's what fellowship means, working together for a common goal. So fellowship does not merely refer to coffee before a Bible study or having dinner in the gym. Those things are good. Those things are fine. We love those things. Fellowship is a lot broader than that. Fellowship is working together toward a common goal or a common purpose. It is an association involving close mutual relations and involvement. So the rest of the chapter here in Acts 2 gives us a picture of how the early church practiced koinonia, how they practiced fellowship. In verses, uh, let me see here. Starting in verse 44 through the end of the chapter through 47. Now, these verses have been somewhat divisive in recent Christian history because a surface level reading of them, especially informed by, you know, the culture wars that we've all experienced over the last 50 to 100 years, um, is you read this and it kind of sounds, it kind of reads like it's describing the early church like living in socialism, right? They're all kind of like selling all their stuff and living in a commune together and all providing for each other. And so this, of course, has led to nothing but harmony and unity in the way brothers and sisters have interpreted this text. Of course, Christians on the far left have used this passage to argue for types of Christian socialism. Christians on the far right have either argued that, well, that's not what the text is saying, or uh, even if it is, uh, we don't have to live this way. And so it begs the question, is the socialistic kind of communal living, uh, shared wealth described in this passage, is it descriptive or is it prescriptive, right? Is it merely describing what they did, or is it prescribing how Christians ought to always live? Or is it neither, or is it something else, right? That's the question, is what, how do we interpret this rightly? And we have to say, we have to be honest with ourselves, regardless of where you're coming from, this passage is no less than descriptive, right? Luke is describing what they did, and what you read is what they did. So if, if you're going to deny that that's even what the text is saying, that they were living this way, 
then you're probably letting your politics influence your hermeneutics, first and foremost, a little too much. This is clearly how they lived. The text is clear that the early church were all selling all of their possessions, they were living together, they were supporting each other, and so the question then is whether the passage is prescriptive. Does Acts chapter 2 basically command church socialism, you know, or communal living or something? And I think the answer is no and yes. So I'm being very clear in how I'm approaching the text. Does Acts chapter 2 command us to live in a socialistic way? And even when I say that, we're all being influenced by our views of more modern socialism in the geopolitical world. The answer to that question is no. The scripture is not commanding us to live in this way exactly as described and the way that uh, many in the world employ this kind of living. Because there are other passages in scripture where, uh, that both affirm and defend the reality of personal property. There's passages in scripture that commend <clears throat> men to work to provide for their families. So personal financial responsibility and personal property are both affirmed and defended in the scripture, right? So scripture always interprets scripture. We can't just read one passage and make a blanket statement and not let other verses or passages inform our view. So there's a sense in which, no, uh, that's not required. But there is a sense in which these verses here in Acts chapter 2 are prescriptive, and that is because Pentecost is the fulfillment of Leviticus 23. We mentioned earlier Exodus 23 and Leviticus 23 are where we first read about the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost. And in Leviticus 23... Uh, where Yahweh commands Israel to practice the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, listen to part of this command. This is verse 22. This is what the Lord says to Israel about Pentecost. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am Yahweh your God. Later, Matthew chapter 25 uh, Jesus is speaking on the final judgment, and he teaches something similar when he says this, Matthew 25, 41 through 46. Jesus says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In James chapter 2, the Apostle James teaches us this. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's James 2, 8 through 10 and 14 through 17. So at least in part, the fellowship that we have with one another, the fellowship that we see here in Acts, the, the fellowship that we have with one another is at least in part demonstrated, it's lived out by caring for each other, taking care of each other. That means if a brother or a sister has a need, we do whatever we can to meet that need at our own personal cost. And if your understanding of Christianity is not in line with that kind of fellowship, then you stand opposed to the early church. 
And you stand opposed to the church throughout history. And most importantly, you stand opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. But Pentecost should create that kind of fellowship in the church because Pentecost is where we finally and fully have fellowship with God. Pentecost is the celebration of the final coming of the Holy Spirit to gather God's people. The Father and the Son have sent the Spirit to indwell all of God's elect, the church, through the preaching of the gospel, through the administration of the sacraments. There is a harvest of people from all nations who have been predestined before the foundation of the world. And through the Spirit and through the Word, the ascended Lord Jesus is collecting His harvest. And unlike Link Midkiff's turnips, Jesus wants His harvest and He's going to keep us forever. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask now that you would keep your promise and that your word would not return void. Father, we ask for those this morning who do not have faith that you would work regeneration in their souls, that their eyes would be open to see the truth of who Christ is and what Christ did for the first time, and that they would repent and that they would believe the good news. Father, we ask for your people, your people who struggle in sin and suffering, through temptations and trials. We ask this morning through the word and through the sacrament that you would indeed sanctify us, that you would grow us. Father, we give you thanks that on that very first Pentecost that you poured your spirit out and now that you permanently indwell your people We ask for hearts that are thankful as we come to the Eucharist. We ask for hands that are willing to help a brother or sister in need because that is what fellowship actually looks like. Father, we ask for hearts that are committed to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread. And we ask that we would be a people of prayer because we are completely and utterly dependent on you and your grace. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit.